Hello and welcome to Regional Classics, a podcast from the University of Oxford, which reflects and celebrates the diverse voices of Oxford classicists, past and present, from different parts of the UK, all the while creating thought-provoking conversations, breaking down barriers, and showing that if you want to study the ancient world, any aspect, politics, history, art, science, literature, culture, and much more, then you can. Oxford classicists do not and need not come from only a narrow cross-section of society. In this episode, I'm delighted to be joined by three Scottish classicists. Professor Bill Allen, a fellow and tutor at University College, where he specialises in Greek literature. Dr Arlene Holmes-Henderson, a St Hilda's Classics alumna and now a senior research fellow in classics education. And Jessica Curry, a third year classics undergraduate at St Hugh's College. Thank you all very much for joining me today. So Bill, I know that you're from Fife originally. Can you remember when you first became aware of the study of the ancient world? Uh, yep, I went, uh, well I grew up in a, a small village in Fife, Bowhill, it's a former coal mining area, and then went to high school in Glenrothes, uh, Glenrothes High School, and uh, in those days there was still the possibility of doing um, Latin and classical studies at the school. That's no longer the case now because since my teacher retired, he hasn't been replaced by a classics teacher. But at the time, I was very lucky to um, get the chance to do Latin uh, as well as classical studies. And then um, I was sort of headhunted to do Greek as a kind of experiment. And so I got to do Greek kind of off curriculum. Um, and I was further headhunted by the religious studies teacher to do classical Hebrew. And so I did classical Hebrew A-level in the lunch hour. So um, although it was a state school, um, it, was, it was, you know, there were a few teachers there who were um, very academically oriented. And they spotted a talent for languages in me and uh, were very um, kind and supportive and as a result, I became the first person in my family to go to university. And, um, and I'm able to pay the mortgage from teaching ancient Greek and Latin, which is pretty cool. Uh, so on the whole, it's been a, a story with a pretty happy ending. I'm very glad to hear it. And fascinating, too, that you got that chance to study Hebrew as well. Um, Arlene, how about you? Yeah, well, pretty similar to Bill, actually. Um, so I grew up in South Lanarkshire, which is near Glasgow. So I come from a village about 20 miles south of Glasgow. And I had absolutely no access to the study of the ancient world whatsoever until I got to high school. And on my very first day of high school, I had a Latin lesson and I opened up Ecce Romani, which was the course book that was used. That's a publication by the Scottish Classics Group. It was used a lot in Scottish high schools. And I met Cornelia and Flavia and Marcus. <laughs> and um, I just loved Latin. I just read the first couple of sentences of this Latin textbook and I got it. I loved being able to spot some English words in the Latin words. And unlike many of the people that I have spoken to since who had exposure to classical mythology in primary school, having had absolutely none of that, I 
had my first weigh-in as a 11-year-old um, at high school. And for me, that was a voyage of discovery into the classical world. And I have never looked back. Fantastic. And Jess? Sure. So, um, yeah, I'm also from kind of near Glasgow. I'm from Inverclyde um, and I'm from a village there. Um, and my first exposure to classics um, was actually kind of similar again, was also um, from uh, getting to study it at high school and we had the choice of Latin or classical studies. And I'm not sure if I should say this on this, but I actually had the opposite experience. Um, I think I was about half a year into doing Latin and I'd asked the tutor, uh, the um, my teacher, if we could switch to classical studies because um, I didn't immediately connect with the language. Um, but then it was halfway through my kind of national five course and we started studying Catullus and Cicero and we started being able to actually translate with the Latin that we were learning um, and that was when I really got hooked on it. Um, so yeah that was great. I should say that I study at St Hugh's with um, someone who didn't do classical civilization or Latin however so um, I feel like we've all kind of come from the same background of studying at school but I know that there's people at Oxford who, who don't do either. Well, exactly. And I mean, sadly, at the moment, I think less than 1% of Scottish students do have access to classical subjects at school. So it's, it's something that's, that is quite rare. Firstly, what are your thoughts on that and how, how that provision potentially could be improved? But also, what would you say to those students that haven't got the opportunity to study it at school right now, but might still want to or be able to access the ancient world in some way and, and find that passion for it that you've all found at various points? Well, I think um, I mentioned earlier about um, my teacher retiring and not being replaced. And as I understand it, the PGDE in, in Latin and Classical Studies has been reintroduced to Moray House in Edinburgh. Is that right, Arlene? Arlene will know more about this than I do. I think the hope is that it's going to be reintroduced. Right. Um, I think it's out for consultation at the moment. So, hopefully... so that would be a great step forward because obviously when headmasters and headmistresses see people retiring and they think, oh, well, will I replace some of the classists? You need a stock of well-qualified teachers there to fill the gaps. So um, if we can produce more in Scotland and not, you know, uh, not sort of import them but, uh, or rely on important uh, classics teachers, that will certainly help maybe even increase the number of people teaching Latin and classical studies at Scottish high schools. And I'd say to people who are thinking of or who are interested in classics and who haven't had a chance to do it at school, because um, not everybody, you know, is as lucky as, as we were to have um, Latin or Greek or classical studies at, at high school, is uh, read widely yourself. Obviously, study the subjects that you most enjoy at school that are available and then apply for classics just the same, because every university has uh, the equivalent of what we call course two in Oxford, where you begin Latin or Greek from scratch. Um, and, you know, some of my best students, I've been a tutor for 17 years at UNIV. And, you know, in the 17 years, some of my best students have been course two students. You know, by the time they do their first set of public exams after five terms, they've caught up with and overtaken, you know, people who've been to Eton or Westminster, uh, they go on, you know, I've even had a, a student who got the top um, top first in, in grades, who was a, she was a course two student. So, you know, with, with hard work and dedication and enthusiasm, you can um, absolutely thrive in, uh, in, in any university in, uh, in Britain. I would say on this question of access to classics in Scotland, there's a real disconnect between policy ambition and policy delivery. So I was involved with 
curriculum for excellence in the early stages when I was actually a high school teacher in Scotland in the mid-2000s. And the fact of the matter is that classics actually is considered a mainstream subject in curriculum for excellence. So Latin is a language alongside modern languages in curriculum for excellence. There is no distinction made for Latin. And so we have a real possibility for Latin to be rolled out widely in Scottish schools because the policy support is there. In the same breath, classical studies is a social subject in Curriculum for Excellence alongside modern studies, history and other social subjects. So at a policy level, there is absolutely no reason why every child in Scotland should not have access to classical studies. Bill is absolutely right. The problem lies with the lack of supply of qualified teachers with registration with the General Teaching Council of Scotland. So until we have an investment at strategic level in the training of teachers in order to roll out the supply of teachers to teach Latin and classical studies in Scotland, we're not going to be able to fulfil that policy ambition. And the withdrawal of classical Greek by the qualification, the Scottish Qualifications Authority means that it is simply impossible for young people in Scotland to set a qualification in classical Greek with SQA. They have to sit the English OCR classical Greek qualification. And that obviously is a really sad set of circumstances. It is indeed. But what about at the primary level? Well, this is where there's actually some good news to report. We have been working hard with the Classical Association of Scotland and the Scottish National Centre for Languages, SILT, to widen access to the study of Latin using Scotland's one plus two languages policy, which allows for the teaching of Latin as the third language in Scottish primary schools. Scottish pupils as their first language will have either English or Gaelic, as their second language, they have the opportunity to learn any other modern language. And they will also study, before they go to high school, a third language, which could be any other modern language, or they have the option of studying an ancient language. And we've had a lot of success in widening access to the study of Latin, particularly in certain local authorities. And I would say that Glasgow City Council has been a real pioneer in this regard. They were one of the first local authorities to work with the Classical Association of Scotland to roll out the teaching of Latin in primary schools in areas that previously didn't offer Latin as a language to um, pupils in those schools. And we've seen really positive feedback from pupils and from parents, from teachers, from school leaders who are delighted that young people have the opportunity to study an ancient language that their parents and their teachers didn't have that opportunity to study when they were at school in Glasgow or in other parts of Scotland. So, you know, we've talked about some of the disappointing aspects in terms of access to uh, classics in Scot Scottish schools today, but I think that things are changing at the primary level. And so there is a glimmer of hope on the horizon, thanks to the one plus two languages policy at the primary level. Fantastic. I'm interested in what led the three of you then to choose to come 
two English universities. I mean, in Scotland, obviously, there is the difference in, in the funding situation. So perhaps there had to be greater external reasons for you to come to study in England and then later to, to teach and work there. What were those journeys like for the three of you? So in terms of, I guess, the reasons I wanted to apply to Oxford, I think it was quite intuitive to me once I knew that I really wanted to study classics and I did know I, I really wanted to study classics by about our fifth year I think I just kind of really fallen in love with the subject and I think as someone who wasn't sure entirely what they wanted to do after university it was kind of this perfect mesh up of of my interests of literature and history and almost politics in a way as well except set quite a long time ago um, and then in terms of my uh, process of applying to Oxford um, I was really lucky in that my my Latin teacher was really supportive and kind of gave me a practice interview which was really helpful uh, my family were really excited for me to apply um, so again like all of these things definitely helped with the process and I think the other thing um, which prepared me was I think I was I think I was lucky to apply to St Hugh's um, as well at the time um, just in so far as I found the interview I think St Hugh's is used to having people who maybe don't perform this is not true of all Scottish people but for me as, as how, how I was coming my Latin was less strong than kind of my essay subjects um, and I think St Hugh's was very interested to have someone who might not necessarily have the highest market mods which did turn out to be true but um, was was maybe going to benefit from the, the four-year course structure um, which um, they had actually spoken to me a little bit about at an open day I was lucky enough to go and meet the tutors and they were kind of telling me um, about that and then I guess it kind of did work out. I actually can definitely understand your point of view. When I studied classics at Oxford, I was in a very similar position where I much preferred the history and the archaeology and art, other aspects. And, and it was taking that long term view over the, the that's the benefit really of the four year course. I know, Bill, originally you said that you were the first person in your family to go to university. Can you talk a bit more about how your background influenced your classics journey at that, at that point and what people's perceptions were about the study of classics, especially if it wasn't something that was hugely mainstream? Yeah, I mean, my mum, so I grew up in a single parent family, so it was me, my mum and my brother. And, you know, my uncles and aunties, nobody had been to university and nobody knew what classics was. So later on, when I became a classicist, when I became an academic, um, people might bump into my mum in the street and say, how's William? And how's his his French coming along? Because for my mum, you know, Latin, Greek, it was a language. So as far as she knew, she told people that I was a professor of French because that was basically the only language she could remember. And so people would say, oh, are you still teaching French at Cambridge? Um, yeah, kind of. Yeah, sort of. So, um, I mean, the, the plus side of not having any pressure from your family to go to university is that you go there because you want to go there and you think it's going to be interesting. And there was no pressure on me to study a particular subject or to go to university or anything like that. Uh, and, you know, I just, as I say, I owe, I owe everything to, um, to my teachers, you know, who spotted something in me as a as a 12 13 year old and encouraged me and yeah and and I hadn't been out of Fife I think I'd been to Blackpool on holiday once when I was 11 but otherwise you know um we didn't have a car I never went out of Fife and for me the distant metropolis was Edinburgh and I wanted to it didn't occur to me that I would study anywhere else so I put one university on my UCAS form Edinburgh (laughs) and got in luckily and uh and then you know Loved it. I think everybody in the Edinburgh department had been to Balliol at some point because there's a very strong connection between, you know, Glasgow and Edinburgh and St Andrews and Balliol over the years. Adam Smith. So they'd all studied as undergraduates or graduates there by by chance. And so 
when I said to them, I'm thinking of becoming an academic, they all said, no, don't do it. It'll ruin your life. Become become an advocate, which is, you know, Scottish equivalent of a barrister. And I said, well, maybe I'll try that. But I'd like to try and do a PhD because in Oxford, it's the biggest, most famous department in the world. Uh, I sort of knew that by then. I didn't know that when I was 17. And so I d- disregarded their advice and I went to Balliol and did a PhD, DPhil, and then eventually ended up here. I always wanted to be a teacher. I was a high school teacher between finishing my PhD and coming back into academia, which I loved. Had I not got back into the kind of rat race of academia at that stage, I would have been very happy as a high school teacher uh, in classics. Yeah, so that's, I didn't have any, there was no pressure to go to university or, to, or and certainly no pressure to do classics because nobody knew what it was. Uh, but it was purely, I enjoyed languages. I seemed to be quite good at them. And particularly Greek literature, as soon as I read the Iliad and Odyssey, I was hooked and uh, just took it from there. That's interesting that both you and Arlene have, are now academics, but have also had that time being school teachers. Mm. How, I mean, Arlene first perhaps, how, how has that influenced the way that you've then kind of come back to academia? Has that given you a, a different perspective on the study of classics? Yeah, I think it has. It's given me real reality check <laughs> because I know what life is like being the person at the front of the room enacting educational policy. I know what it's like to have to enthuse 30 people about ancient literature and to have to do the marking and the parents' evenings and deal with staff room politics. And the life of a teacher is incredibly challenging. It is not a part-time job the way that it's sometimes portrayed in the media. So I think the time that I spent as a classroom teacher, I was in schools for more than a decade, both as a teacher and in leadership positions. And I think that has been incredibly useful for me now as an academic working and researching classics education, because the conversations that I have with academic colleagues and now with policymakers are all the more credible and authentic from the point of view of knowledge exchange. And I know in your research as well, Arlene, that you focus quite a lot on on ancient rhetoric, which must be something that you employ in the classroom itself in that very oral style of, of communication and teaching. That obviously is one thing that we do gain from the ancient world, certainly is our use of language and probably something that is very much practiced within the Oxford degree. What are some of those other sort of skills that are, that are developed by the study of classics and and how have you both experienced them as a as whether it be as a student desk or as a somebody kind of on the other side of that tutorial system or academic relationship? I think, the, I, again, I, I kind of mentioned this before, but I really like the kind of, I think it's like sort of interdisciplinary nature of the Oxford course. So if you've got an interest, you'll probably have it developed over the first year and a half of the Oxford course. Um, you do modules in uh, almost pure literature, like when you're looking at the Iliad or the Naid, for example. Um, but then you also have this module called Texts and Contexts, which um, I really enjoyed because it took a period of time in classical history that I didn't know much about at all. So let's say kind of classical Athens, and you're looking at um, uh, a text which um, maybe let's say you're looking at an Athenian playwright, but at the same time, you're having to consider the cultural setting of that. You're looking at any archeological evidence you'd have that would intersect with it. So in terms of the skills that comes from that, I think it's a 
it gives you a really interesting way of looking at the world I think and then um and then the skills that you kind of want to develop more as you move into your third and fourth year you kind of get to narrow down and pick from something like 80 modules I think it is now and so I really I, I really like essay writing kind of argument building literature analysis so I'm doing a lot of literature and history modules um, some people are much more um, interested in linguistics so maybe that's the kind of skills that they're building um, yeah fantastic what are your thoughts on that Arlene so reflecting both on my own time as an undergraduate and now um, as a member of faculty I think one of the key skills that the study of classics helps cultivate is communication we are able to communicate both in written form and also orally and we know from a number of surveys that what employers are looking for is people who are able to communicate effectively and are able to evidence their arguments and are able to show that they can communicate with a number of diversely positioned stakeholders. And that is something which we can be really proud of as graduates of classics. And I think it's something that we are not particularly good at, at promoting and talking about. So yes, obviously, as somebody who researches ancient rhetoric, <laughs> Is something which I'm deeply embedded in but I think the communication skills that come from studying classics are something that we could do better to talk about. Going back though Arlene to when you came to St Hilda's to, to do classics as an undergraduate I'm interested in how you felt that your kind of your Scottish background and your lived experience to that point influenced both your experience as an undergraduate and then also the, the parts of classics that appeal to you and, and the things that you enjoyed. So I think my Scottish background <laughs> contributed to a number of giggles initially. I guess the elephant in the room that we perhaps haven't talked about so far is accent. Uh, we can't get away from the fact that as Scots, we come to Oxford and sound different. And this was definitely something that I experienced very quickly when I came as an undergraduate to Oxford. And with friends initially in Freshers' Week, it was just funny. You know, I would say, you know, I need to find where Boots is. And they would be like, oh, that's so funny. Listen to how she says Boots, Boots, Boots. And they would all, you know, kind of repeat it. And it was okay. Like, I didn't find it, you know, I didn't find it upsetting because I'm somebody who's quite proud of my Scottish accent. Um, so it was just funny. And I was very proud because when I went to my first milk class, so that's the kind of morning language class that classicists have, James Morwood at the time, um, uh, a Greek tutor, complimented me on the way that I read Greek out loud. He was he thought that the Glaswegian pronunciation of Greek vowels was really very beautiful. So that really made me feel happy about my Glaswegian accent and made me feel proud of it. But I hadn't realized that a lot of the words that I was using were Scots words. I didn't, I just hadn't realized that these weren't English words. So I, I used the word fankle, that I got something in a fankle. And I didn't realize that like English people didn't know what the word fankle means. So for people who are listening, if you get something in a fankle, it's all twisted and knotted up and you need to untie it. And I said something was sugarly. And they were like, what does sugarly mean? And it means it's kind of like unsteady. And I said um, that this dessert that was served in St Hilda's dining room one day was sleggery. I really don't like sleggery food. What does sleggery mean? 
It means it's slimy. Just to clarify, the chocolate mousse was very delicious. The food at St Hilda's was actually delicious. I had a very happy time. It's just that my personal preference is not for that style of dessert. And, and my English friends were just like, oh my goodness, she's speaking a different language. We're learning Latin, we're learning Greek, and now we're learning Scots. So I think my, my Scottish background really did come with me to Oxford. And maybe, you know, maybe I did add a certain sprinkle of something to my time at St Hilton. And Bill, when you came to Balliol and then later to UNIV, how do you think your heritage has influenced you? Uh, yeah, I mean, coming as a graduate student, it's a wee bit different because, you know, it's so much more international. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, Balliol still has this huge graduate community at um, just just outside the the main college site, and um, so you know you, you were meeting people from you know not just all over. I mean, probably about sixty percent of the people are inter are, no, are overseas students, um, and there were other Scots there, uh, mainly from Glasgow University because of the Snell scholarship that exists between Glasgow and Balliol, um, and uh, yeah, so it, uh, you know I wasn't as conscious I'm sure had I been an undergraduate I would have been much more conscious of that uh, than than I was as a graduate student but what um, Arlene was saying it reminds me there's a great podcast by Val McDermott who was also at St Hilda she's a great Scottish writer um, you might know her books um, uh, she's dear to my heart not just because she's a Pfeiffer but also because she sponsors um, Wraith Rovers football team we've got valmcdermott.com on their uh, on their um, shirts my, my local team. I mean, there's a wonderful podcast on the Oxford University website of Val McDermott's experiences as a as a as a Fife student coming, you know, to to become a Hilda Beast, as they were called then back in the um, as she as she herself calls them. Not, Bill, not, we're Hilda Babes. We're oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Babes, Bill. Yeah, yeah. She she describes herself as uh, in those terms uh, back in back in the day. Uh, I mean, I think the other elephant in the room to use that expression that Arlen used uh, on this topic is is fees I mean if you're you know again Jessica can comment on this better than I can but I mean coming from a background like mine where there is no money <laughs> uh, but you've got the chance to go to university because you know you're bright enough and it's pu- uh, teachers encourage you would you okay the, the Oxford tutorial system is unique and you know you're getting a bit of value value added there so that you're not getting maybe if you're going to Durham or Bristol or other English universities. But if you were in my position, is it worth nine grand a year? Would it occur to you to go to a university outside Scotland? You know, if you can go for free in Scotland, that's a huge issue. Individual pupils and their parents, you know, have got to discuss and think about because obviously you're getting the added prestige and kudos of the Oxford degree. But, you know, there are costs as well as benefits for Scottish students specifically. Yeah, absolutely. And that's something that, you know, like people, a few people from my school had said at the time I was applying in the sense of there are so many great universities in Scotland. (laughs) Why are you going to pay for something which you can have subsidised by staying like within the country? Um, I think I think I was lucky to not to almost not think of the debt insofar as the student loan service SAS can cover covers your fees. They also can offer a maintenance loan which sort of covers as much as rent would be from a college system it's almost exactly the same uh, which means that the only thing you're self-funding is is food and anything you're doing out with out with that 
Um, so the kind of immediate cost wasn't something which I was I was lucky enough not to have to worry about too much with both of those combined. Um, I know other um, Scottish people from my college who are who felt in a similar position or didn't really feel in the same position but benefited from one of the um, college bursaries is also university bursaries. So I think these things can sort of e- ease the dilemma to a certain extent. Um, and I think for me, at the point I had the offer from Oxford, I, I would have found it very difficult to give it up just because, like you say, of maybe, maybe partly as well because of the prestige and the kudos, as well as the fact that I was very keen to do the tutorial system. But yes, um, it's as I'm, I'm in my third year, I graduate next year. So the fact that the loans do have to be paid back, paid back at some point has started to occur to me, which I hadn't done at all the first and second year, really. I try to think of them in my head as almost sort of like a tax for going to university insofar as they will get paid back in hopefully quite small installments um, and only once you are earning over a certain wealth threshold. Um, so, yeah, that's how I kind of try to think about them in my head. And that was the trade off I made to come here. And I think it worth, might be worth at this point saying that there are also a couple of initiatives which are being run by the university, which interested prospective Scottish applicants could have a look at. One is Oxford for Scotland. So this is the the Central University's outreach initiative where prospective applicants can go on the Oxford for Scotland website and see how the university is supporting Scottish applicants. I am on that webpage because I'm one of the co-founders of that project and actually Jessica's head of house, Dame Ailish Angiolini, is also um, a driving force behind that initiative. The other is the Clydeside project, which features a number of current Scottish undergraduates who have got profiles featured on that website talking about their motivations for applying for a range of subjects at Oxford and uh, saying that they are happy to be contacted by prospective applicants and they will provide support and assistance and mentoring to prospective applicants who are interested in applying to Oxford and to Cambridge. So they are two websites which we will link to uh, together with this podcast. Indeed we will. And do any of you feel that there are any other ways in which not just Oxford classics but classicists more generally can try and help make the ancient world a bit more accessible to people from all over and and particularly from Scotland. Are there any other other ways that these barriers can be broken down do you think? I mentor with the Clydeside project um, and it's definitely something which is worth signing up to. It's very, I think it's um, a really good way for if you're under 18, especially if you're not having class small uh, having small class sizes I think it's a really good way just kind of get used to speaking about maybe your passion for classics which is something which is really helpful when it comes to any potential interviews and I also um, last year I worked with Oxford Classics Society and one of the things which we did which we found had quite a lot of interest was just making the talks that we were doing because they were all on Zoom anyway available for school students as well as um, our university members which is such a I mean it's the zero cost thing to do and we did find that there was lots of interest of people who were you know 15, 16 and just wanted to find out a bit more about classics and see if it was something that they were engaged about to listen in and yeah we had really positive responses for that so I think um, just kind of sharing resources a bit is helpful because there are people who want to, to take them up. So a myth I would like to dispel is about who outreach events are for and potential applicants sitting in Scotland who might just have completed national qualifications, national four, national five, might be sitting browsing university websites and see that outreach events talk about this event is aimed at students 
in year 12 or year 13 or people who are sitting GCSE and A-level. And having been one of those Scottish students reading those outreach websites, I can absolutely see that it is challenging to understand what that means and whether that means, well, does that include me? I'm Scottish. I haven't done GCSEs. I'm not in year 12. Am I allowed to attend this event? And what I want to say is absolutely this includes you. I'm sorry if there are still parts of the university, either Oxford or other English universities, who aren't using Scottish terminology, who aren't talking about nationals or hires or advanced hires or S4, S5, S6. We absolutely should be. Scottish students are 100% welcome at outreach events and 100% welcome to apply to Oxford. Um, if you have any doubt whatsoever about whether year 12 matches up with S5 or what this terminology means, please just email and ask. And as somebody who's been through the Scottish system, if anybody is listening to this who works in outreach and feels like, oh, they don't fully understand um, the Scottish system and how this translates into how they can advertise their event, I'm really happy to help them do that translation process. On to a slightly more general question now, I think about the nature, we've talked briefly about how interdisciplinary classics is and how it is very definitely multifaceted and we've all got different kind of research and interests within it. But I'd like to ask the three of you, what what does classics mean to you? And that might mean in terms of the word itself, or it might be a more kind of personal, your your reflections on one, what classics has meant to you so far. Bill? Um, <laughs> Put you on the spot there. <laughs> <laughs> a steady salary. <laughs> I mean, I think if you're doing humanities or social sciences, the main reason to do the subject is because it's fun. I mean, that's true of every subject as an undergraduate. You choose to go to university to do classics because that's your favourite subject and you enjoy it. Um, and as we mentioned earlier, we have the luxury in Britain, unlike in some countries where if you do Latin or Greek at university, you're kind of funneled into Latin and Greek teaching at schools or university. In Britain, we've got the luxury that if you've got a good, you know, two one or above degree in classics from any British university, because, you know, they're, they're all excellent universities, you can do basically anything, you know? And that's reflected in uh, my undergraduates at Univ. On the average year, a third will do the law conversion, a third will go into the city and finance and various descriptions, and the other third will do all the other interest in jobs in the world you know, from being theatre directors or writers or classics teachers or professional rugby players. I mean, you name it, you know, they do everything. Uh, so it should never be a barrier. If you are listening to this and your parents are saying, you'll never get a job. Just say, no, actually I will. The statistics show, you know, look at all these things online about save the humanities, save English. You know, the people at the top of so many companies, including tech companies, you know, computer, you know, computer programming companies, you know, Google, the people at the top did humanities subjects, you know, 80% of them, they did French and music at university, and then they moved into that field. So I think we're very lucky in Britain that if you've got a passion for classics, you can pursue it at university without it narrowing down your um, career options in any way. But for me, classics is fun, right? I mean, that's, I do it. I do it because I enjoy teaching. I happen to be, you know, pretty good at Latin and Greek. I enjoy it. And, you know, I'm very happy, you know, but the main reason to do it is, is, is fun. As well as, you know, the grand intellectual reasons of, you know, 
plumbing the depths of the human condition, which uh, classics obviously does as well. How about you, Jess? Yeah, I think it's a, exactly, it is just incredibly fun and it's, it's something so exciting as well and, and quite special to be, I mean, my age and to know nothing at all and then to go back, you know, 2,000 years and, and be reading some love poetry or, 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 or whatever it is that your main interest is and be like, oh, well, these people mean nothing as well or they mean lots or they're being instructive or... I find it really exciting to be reading something from someone so long ago and going, oh, well, I kind of feel that same way. So you get this really engaging mix of kind of like big questions, but also individual connections. Um, and yeah, I think I think I, I think that's something which is quite special. I'm sure everyone who does a humanity thinks that their subject helps them connect to, you, you know, these big cultural questions in, in the best way. But I, I genuinely do think that's true for classics. And I think it's having such a popular resurgence that you, you kind of know that this is something quite universal. So not everyone's going to decide that their passion, that their passion for classics means that they want to study it for three or four years, um, four years here. But um, you, we've seen kind of like a resurgence in, I don't know, Madeline Miller, Cersei, The Song of Achilles, or I got into Roman history because of the Robert Harris, the Cyril books. Um, so yeah, I think it's it's really nice to get to study this thing, which um, I do think everyone everyone wants to know about the ancient world to a certain extent. Certainly. And Arlene, what does classics mean to you? Um, so very much like Bill and Jess, I think classics is a really exciting subject domain. At the moment, I'm doing a lot of work with policymakers, and classics doesn't really mean an awful lot to them because as far as they're concerned, they work with the terminology of qualifications. So in Scotland, we have Latin and we have classical studies. That's what classics means in Scotland. And in England, it's Latin, classical Greek, ancient history and classical civilization. So that's what we're working with at the moment. As you know, there is a lot of discussion, some of it heated at the moment, about what classics means and whether that term is helpful or actually unhelpful. And those conversations, I imagine, are going to run on for quite some time. Classics Twitter is a place where those conversations are happening in a very public way. So anyone who's interested in this, uh, Classics Twitter is the place to go to be part of those conversations. How has though the ancient past, and I suppose maybe Bill come to you first, informed your understanding of the world today? So not just it obviously is your job and it's your career and it's something that you find take a lot of enjoyment from, but are there any aspects that you think maybe, you know, historically, politically, that, that feed into your, your understanding of, of the world in 2021? Yeah, I guess, I mean... Oh, I've been doing classics for many years, so I say. <laughs> and one thing I've learned from my extensive study of the past is that the past was largely rubbish. And I'm really, really happy that I'm alive today, you know, when people don't die willy-nilly in childbirth or because they've got a toothache. So uh, I'm a big, firm believer in human progress. Nevertheless, you know, there are certain things in the human condition that remain you know, big questions that remain fundamentally the same. Uh, and although they, you know, are addressed in different ways in different cultures, are pretty pan-cultural, you know, issues to do with morality, life and death and love, and all the big issues that make life worth living. And, you know, to read Sappho on love, or to read Aeschylus on justice, or to read um, Cicero on 
Cicero, um, you know, is, a, is great fun. It's a cliche, but like many cliches, it's true that, you know, you see history repeating itself and you can see things that you've read about in Thucydides or Herodotus or Suetonius literally happening on the front pages of your newspaper. And uh, it's interesting to compare and contrast different cultures' um, responses to them, as well as all the stuff that we already alluded to about transferable skills and, you know, what classics, um, you know, that sets you up for, for, the, for the real world beyond uh, college and university. But it is true that having that awareness of historical events and especially when you've read them in textual form, so you've understood not just the, the, the kind of the facts as far as we know, but also you've read that bias and you've kind of seen it through a lens of a contemporary mm -hmm. author at the time, does give you such a perspective on you know, modern, modern politics around the world. Arlene and Jess, are there any other ways as well that you feel that the, the ancient world's informed your understanding of modern life? One of the most um, moving ways that I've interacted with classics was um, by seeing a production from the Trojan Women Project, which um, they, they they were recently based in Glasgow. And it was, a, and this is a, a group of uh, Syrian refugees who are now living in Glasgow, rebuilding their lives there, who put on a performance of um, the Trojan Women, which is this kind of very ancient anti-war play. Um, and listening to interviews about the, from the cast members, they kind of speak about finding their own voice to process this horrible trauma, but with the framework of a really ancient play. Um, and I think a very, I mean, it's very powerful to watch because you understand that these are people who kind of understand, you know, this classical play in a way that you never will. And I'm very thankful it never will. Um, but I think it really did show a sort of enduring power to, to the script, um, among many other things. I would say the exhibition at the Hunterian Museum in Glasgow of the Romans in Scotland was something that I really enjoyed visiting. So they have this um, permanent display called the Last Frontier. And as somebody who had grown up in the west of Scotland and somebody who had studied the higher and advanced higher Latin course, I only visited this exhibition a few years ago and couldn't believe that actually there were a number of pieces of material culture on display in the west of Scotland, which brought to life the legacy of the Romans in the west of Scotland, which had come from places near where I had grown up and where I had gone to school. And yet I had at no point in my school career known anything about them, didn't know that they exist and hadn't gone to see them. So... I think that there are ways of intertwining the ancient past with learning about the ancient past and museums are a great place to do that. Um, and a project I'm working on now with funding from the Arts and Humanities Research Council is trying to do some of this joining of the dots between museums and schools. It's called improving access to classical studies in museums and schools. And I think that bringing the ancient world to life for young people by connecting museum curators and school teachers is something that can be really very powerful. And I would love to see more young people in Scottish schools learning about the legacy of the Romans in Scotland through material culture. And that's a fantastic way to start to bring our episode to a close. So before I do that, I want to just ask if there's anything that any of you would like to talk about or mention or highlight. And if not, then the final question, any, any myths or barriers that you feel that we haven't quite covered that you'd like to dispel? Yeah, I mean, I think we've 
I think we've successfully busted most myths today. Um, so we busted the myth that, you know, that we're not studying a subject that's um, relevant to the modern world. Uh, we've busted the myth that classics is a dead end career wise. I mean, as far as Oxford's concerned, then, you know, the main myth is busting the myth that classics per se as a subject is elitist, which is absurd. I mean, as a subject is no more elitist per se than physics or chemistry or English. It's structural things that lead to elitism. Uh, and the best way of breaking them down is obviously we mentioned the return of PGDE at Moray House and hopefully um, Latin and classical studies, if not Greek, um, being more widely available uh, in Scotland in the future. I guess another myth is you sometimes meet at outreach events is where people come in, they say, oh, I don't have access to, or I've only done classical civilization. How, will I cope with, you know, Oxford degree? Answer is yes, of course you will. Or I haven't done any classics while I cope with the Oxford degree. Is it going to be supportive of people from my background? And yeah, the answer is yes. You know, I mean, the um, the, the ab initio Latin and Greek have been running for, for many decades now. They're a very well-oiled machine. And as I say, the really bright students who are on it um, achieve excellent results. Yeah, it's absolutely. And I think in a way, sometimes maybe applying to ab initio, at least it, it, it could be almost quite helpful in some ways insofar as you know that you've got this really excellent sometimes one-on-one -on -one teaching from the get-go but that's true of I think for um, most courses but for classics um, no matter what course you come on to is that one of the great things is that as much as school or even more than school perhaps which is not true everywhere you go it's it's very easy and it's to, to reach out to your senior tutor or someone who you have for your one-on-one -on -one or two-on-one -on -one tutorials um, so getting help I think is and getting support is something which is really possible and yeah, I think this, I, I agree that the big myth, I think, for Oxford is, is Oxford somewhere that I even want to go as a Scottish person. And then I think is classics at Oxford something I want to study maybe compounds that question in terms of I think I think it does bear the burden of sounding like something very elitist. And I, I know there's people from my school like who who were very clever and are now doing very well at university, but who just thought, oh, well, Oxford's not some why would I want to go to, to Oxford when I can apply X, Y and Z? And I think that's a fair question. Um, but I think there's not loads of people from Scotland um, who are in Oxford right now. Like it would be great for there to be more people. But I remember my first day kind of thinking, oh, I'm going to tell people I'm from Glasgow because Glasgow's more interesting than my village, which is Kilmacombe. Um, and I'll get away with that because there's not going to be any Scots who I'm going to meet. And then um, in about the first two minutes, I met three Glaswegian boys at my college who all told me I had to stop saying I was Glaswegian, I was from Kilmacombe, which was quite nice, actually. Um, and yeah, I think there's definitely a nice community to be found. So insofar as should I apply it's because it might be difficult, I think it's always going to be difficult to apply to university. But if it's something that you do want to do, then there's definitely the support there. And in terms of should I apply, because will I actually enjoy it when I get there? Like the answer is so, so yes. I've not really spoken to anyone who's, who's regretted coming for, for classics. And just building on what Jess said, I would say from the Faculty of Class Classics perspective, we are actively open and welcoming to applications from Scottish students. We would love to see more applications from students who are going to school in Scotland. So please, please, if you are currently studying Latin or classical studies in Scotland, or you're currently not studying Latin or classical studies in Scotland, but you're interested in studying classics course one or course two, or any of the joint schools in classics in Oxford, 
please do apply. We would love to see an application from you. It is absolutely the case that the classics admissions tests require you to have learned vocabulary. And it is also the case that when you do higher Latin, you are given a word list. So my top tip is that over the summer after you have done your hire and before you do the test in November, learn vocabulary because there is no exception made for Scottish students. The expectation is that you will just learn enough vocabulary in order to do your best on the classics admissions test. And I just want to say a huge thank you to all three of our panellists today for sharing their experiences and for capturing, I think, as always, the joy that classics can bring and the, the fun that can be had with it as a subject, especially here at Oxford. Thank you very much, Arlene, Bill and Jessica, for your time today on this episode of Regional Classics.